Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you. Sing like never before, 
2 Samuel 6 is where we're going to be at. Um, the title of the sermon is The King Passing By. The King Passing By. 2 Samuel 6. I'm not going to have you stand because I'm going to read the whole entire chapter, and it's long. And yeah, the whole chapter, it's a lot, but some of you need a lot of help, so we're going to read it all, all right? I'll give you a minute to, to turn there, Second Samuel chapter 6. I've, I've just been enjoying um, spending some time looking at the life of David and, uh, and all that God did. I was planning, planning on preaching on David a time he went crazy or pretended to be crazy, but I think uh, we need to go in this direction, and I'm excited to have communion with you guys today. We'll bring our kids back and let them join in. For it. Second Samuel 6, then David gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of Judah to bring back the ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, not to be mistaken for Ohio, Abinadab's sons were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and studied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there besides the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. He named that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, and is still called that today. David was now afraid of the Lord, and he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. Some translations might say linen, ephod. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Mishal, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Mishal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today. 
shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David reported to Michelle, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrated before the Lord. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michelle, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. Who who says the Bible is boring, right? Man, I love God's Word. As I was reading that, I I was thinking of some struggles that people are going through. doesn't really have anything to do with the sermon, but uh, I go back to that prayer, what we talked about. Would you please, please be lifting people up? People have been struggling for years with things. They are waiting for, God's to move, for God to move, and they're being faithful. And I I pray that you would maybe go back a few sermons and just remember that that God's grace is sufficient during these times and latch on to that, right? And and know that you do have a church family that cares about what you're going through, though, and the struggles, and 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 uh, would gladly stand with you. Amen. Mosquitoes have nothing to do with malaria. That was the common thought of the day in the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. Experts believe that instead of mosquitoes, malaria was transmitted by ants. That's what they thought. When outbreaks would happen, they believed the culprit were, were ants coming into contact with people. This mistake led to many deaths, thousands. In fact, over 20,000 people died during the first 20 years that they built the Panama Canal. The Panama Canal was this ambitious project that looked to connect both the Pacific and Atlantic oceans, right? So that you wouldn't have to spend that or take that 8,000-mile detour and go around South America. I say ambitious because it took 30 years to complete and $7 billion in today's money. In the first two decades, 20,000, over 20,000 people died when the French were trying to accomplish this. They're the ones who started this project. They eventually ran out of money, though, and the project was scrapped for the time being. But then Teddy Roosevelt and the American people came along, and the United States took over this project and completed it in the next 10 years. While the French, though, were attempting to build this canal, they did everything that they could to fight malaria and yellow fever but everything that they could do was aimed at stopping ants. And as a result, they did nothing with mosquitoes. Putting, they did nothing to put screens on windows and doors. They would not approve these purchases because it didn't help with the ants. They were successful against the ants. They put crockery rings around trees, especially fruit trees. A, a crockery ring was this little moat, man-made moat of water that went around the trees to keep the ants away, but it didn't seem to help. At the height of the issue with the disease, three out of four people that went into the hospital with this ended up dying. The ants couldn't get to the people because they they 
put bowls of water under each leg of the hospital bed to keep the ants away. But we all know today what loves stagnant water, right? What loves water just sitting there in, in moats around trees and in bowls and hospital beds, specifically the mosquitoes that carry yellow fever and malaria. That's where they love. That's where they multiply. And in trying to fix the problem, they actually made it worse. It was when the Americans started and came along uh, working on the canal that they put screens on every windows and, and doors, and they got rid of the moats and all the bowls of water. And in the final 10 years of construction, they only lost 3,000 people. The point is that in doing the right thing, you can do it the wrong way. In trying to do the right thing, you can do it the wrong way. They were fighting the disease, but they were doing it totally wrong. And that's what's exactly happening in this passage right here. We see people that appear to be trying to do the right thing, right? But in the wrong way way and that's what we need to be careful of david starts off with this desire to bring god to the center of his life to bring god to this city or or to bring at least this ark which represented god's presence to the city of david so right after he takes over jerusalem he decides to bring the ark there from where it had been sitting for three decades before this the philistines the enemies of the Lord had captured the ark of God and they took it because they thought it was this kind of mystical relic of power. And they thought if they could possess this mystical relic, it would bring them blessings, kind of like a, a good luck charm. But we know from God's word that all it brought them was trouble. And they quickly realized that and, and got rid of it. They sent it back. And the Israelites just kind of left it park here with this guy named Abinadab at his house, but David longs for God's presence and decides to bring it to where he was. So he goes and gets it. And David's notes he wrote in Psalm 132, he talks about how he couldn't sleep and he couldn't eat because he just longed to see God's presence in the heart of the nation of Israel. He longed to see the whole nation of Israel turn from idolatry. And so he wanted to bring the ark there so that the people could be reminded so that the people could be reminded of the presence of God. Great desire to have, right? And he delegates the move to the family who had been watching it, taking care of it for three decades. So it was Abinadab's son, Uzzah and Ahio, who came up with this great idea. Hey, let's put the ark, let's bring the ark back in style. Let's do it a little different than we usually do it. Not like the old way where people carried it. Let's, let's put it on a cart, though, a new cart, and let's let an oxen pull it. Kind of like the, how the Philistines transported it. So the right thing, but being done wrong. Because in Exodus 25, God specifically laid out the design for the ark. It was to be carried by poles. Those poles were never to be removed in it. They were supposed to have four descendants of Moses, four Levites that would always carry this ark on their shoulders with the poles. That was the only way it was allowed to be transported. The poles went through the rings on the sides, and like I said, they weren't supposed to be removed not to mention no one was supposed to touch the ark, right? But you know, that was the old way. 
We have to update how we do things, get the latest and greatest upgrades. This won't be a big deal to God. He, he won't mind this, right? He won't mind that they put it on a cart, that we're doing it a little bit differently. But the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reaches out to steady it and was struck down by God on the spot. You remember the first time you read that story or you heard that story? I don't know about you, but I was like, whoa, right? That, that seems a little bit harsh, God. That's what I thought. Uh, I thought the guy was just trying to help. Sounds like he was doing something nice. I, I thought God should give him a warning shot, maybe a little static you know, shock as soon as he touched it so he could realize, take his hand off of it. No, no warning shock. God just strikes him down dead. But this is just the tip of the iceberg in Uzzah's life that we're seeing. We're just seeing one moment in this man's life. This, this guy had spent 30 years watching over the ark, and he knew, all the reg- he knew all the regulations. You see, Uzzah was a priest. He was consecrated. He was set apart for this particular task. He understood all the regulations. He understood all the rules. But it, it, it seemed like he began kind of to, to see himself as more important than the rules, a little self-important, which honestly is easy to do when you have an important job, right? God has given us all the extremely important job of carrying the good news of Jesus to our neighbors, to the world, but we must never let that important job or our new standing with God inflate our sense of self-importance. Sometimes we do this, and we get lax with God's laws. I know I should be doing this, but uh, here's why it doesn't apply to me. Uh, we're hard in how we see other people, right? We're, we're quick to point out how that person is not following God's laws, but we have a great excuse why we don't have to follow God's laws. We rationalize why, we don't, why this doesn't apply to us. God forbid that we ever think we don't have to do the things of God's word. God forbid that we ever think it doesn't apply to us and just apply to everyone else. This is the picture of the Pharisees, right? Israel's teachers entrusted with God's word, who knew God's word inside and out, but they didn't get it inside, right? They didn't get it. They didn't follow it in their hearts. They, they, they looked at everybody else and how they were following it, but they never let it sink into themselves. There are people that are quick to point out others' sins, but quick to give themselves a pass because, hey, I've got special circumstances that make it so I don't have to do what God's word says. Uzzah's death was sudden, but it, make no mistake, it was years in the making, right? His, his act wasn't just a reaction type of moment, oops, where he, where he studied the heart. It was this lifelong obsession with managing and controlling the ark, really managing and controlling God's presence. That's why he didn't follow the rules for transporting. If he had a real respect for God, he would have transported it the way he knew he should. He would have never have touched it. He had selective obedience because he elevated himself above 
everybody else. I don't need to do it the way God says to do it. I got a better way, my way. I don't need to obey how you said I should approach you, God, right? I'm kind of a big deal. Be careful. We have a tendency to ignore God's word in areas of our lives because our our thinking makes more sense. After all, that's the old way of doing it. Here's the truth, and I hope you let this sink in. Religion you control, you decide, has no power to save you. Religion that you control, that you decide, has no power to save you. Uh, Or at very least, elevating yourself above that to the point that he did, uh, to the point where God needs your help, right? It's lacking everything. It doesn't make sense. I'm so important, right? That's what he said. I'm so important, I have to study the ark. I have to save God. That's really what he was saying. Do you want to serve a God that you have to save? I want to serve a God that catches me when I fall, that saves me. Now, David's horrified, though, at this, right? David's like, what just happened here? David has the best intentions. He, he loves God, wants to bring the ark home. It's going to be great, right? Let's throw a party while we're doing it. Let's get some musicians. He's a musician. Let's get some other musicians, play some music, and have this celebration, and bam, Uzzah gets struck down dead. And David says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Parties canceled, right? And he wasn't willing to take the ark with him. And beyond that, he's angry. He's angry at what God did. Notice, though, that God doesn't strike him dead in this, which just shows you that God isn't someone that's just looking to to smite somebody when they mess up. I'm sure Uzzah had plenty of opportunities to repent, plenty of opportunities to, to do the right thing, but he enjoyed playing God. He enjoyed elevating himself above God's law. God's allowing David, though, to be angry with him shows me that God can handle our emotions, right? Sometimes we feel like we have to approach God in a certain way. Yes, reverently, right? But sometimes we feel like we can't share our our true emotions, what we're feeling with him. God's big enough to handle our frustrations, though. Even when we're hurting, And we lash out. He wants you to come into his presence and be real with him. Don't think you have to hide that. Well, David leaves the ark at Obed-Edom's house, and God just pours out the blessings on this family. For three months, God blesses this household and this person, and David hears about it. Right, And I guarantee you that if you actively seek God's presence in your home, he'll pour out his blessings on you. But David hears about this and went to get the ark. Now he's like, let's try this again. Take two, right? Let's do it right. So they got the poles. They got the four Levites, and they start walking. They get six steps, though, in, six steps into this, and they they stop. They sacrifice a bull and a fattened calf. And this time there were different sacrifices. And, and, and this one that we see here is called a, a burnt offering. A burnt offering was a sacrifice where you placed your hand on the animal's head and your sins were 
transferred figuratively, ceremonially to that animal. And it acted as a substitute for you. So you should be the one that pays the price for your sins, right? You committed them, but this animal is sacrificed as a substitute in your place. It's a picture of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. As Jesus hung there, Isaiah says, the sins of us all were laid upon him. And God looked at him who had never sinned, right? As though he had committed all the sins so that he might look at us who have committed these sins and see the righteousness of God. Amen? David was making sure they were in good standing. That's why he does this at the sixth step. The seventh would have represented completion. The, second would have re- the seventh would have represented fullness. So everything had to be made right before they got to seven. Without forgiveness, it can't be completed. Without forgiveness, nothing can be accomplished. Without the blood of Jesus, there is no mercy. There is no hope. There is no way. We all crave wholeness deep down in our being. We all want to be complete. We want the peace on the inside that only comes through faith and calling on the name of Jesus Christ so that we can be saved. Notice, that's when the party started. That's when the music starts, right? That's when David starts dancing. But when he does this, he realizes, he, he looks down and he sees a problem with it. He's wearing these royal garments. And this won't do because he has this revelation. He sees the ark and he remembers what it represents, right? He knows it represents the king. And no way is he going to try and compete with him. You see, the king is passing by and David's got to lower himself submit himself in appreciation and reverence. He's got to get out of those kingly garments so that he can just worship. The king is passing by, and it's time to worship. When you have your sins forgiven, right, when you find grace, when you experience his mercy, you throw down your crown. You're quick to throw down your worldly crowns at his feet, at the king's feet, because you realize that he alone is worthy of praise. The one who bore my sin, the one who bore my shame, my guilt, the one who paid for the sins of the world. And when he passes by, if you get that, all you can do is worship. That's what David wants the people to experience. That's why he's dancing, but his wife, Michelle, sees this and she despises him. He's dancing around in this linen ephod. To her, David should have kept on his royal garb, which symbolized power, which symbolized strength, which symbolized majesty. He should have been looking like a king, the king he was. But David busts out of those clothes and lowers himself to just this tunic. Some people think he danced naked or in his whitey tighties, but no, it's more like he took off the tux and put on the jeans and t-shirt stripped down to the simple attire of a a day laborer, a servant, just an ordinary person, just like everyone else. That's the revelation you have when you stand before the king. You realize fast there's only one king. 
And everyone else is just a normal person standing before him. We're all servants before this king. So here's this normal person attire. And and I don't know if you noticed this, what he did at the end. He gave a, a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the crowd. Here's the king serving the people, elevating the people. That's also what happens when you come into God's presence, right? You don't care about people bowing down to you. You don't care if anybody recognizes you. You just want to serve other people because that's what the king of kings did to you. And you can't help not do that to other people when you get it. The power of Jesus causes us to humble ourselves. Get that royal robe off, right? Let's put on the apron and serve. Let's lift up and serve all the people around us. Dave serves them and treats them like royalty. He gives them these delicacies of this day and age. And in all this, and all that he did, Mishael hated him for it, despised him for it. David comes home after serving people. And what, what's he getting ready to do? He's getting ready to bless his family after worshiping. And there's a dark cloud in the room. Gentlemen, I don't know if you ever come home to the dark cloud. I've never come home to the dark cloud. But maybe you have, right? But she says, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today shamelessly exposing himself in view of all these lowly people, right? What was her problem? Did you notice how she's referred to in this passage, right? She's David's wife. That's not how she's referred to, though, right? It's always Michelle, the daughter of Saul. She's not seeing him from the perspective of being his wife. She's looking at him through the identity of being Saul's daughter. Saul would have never done that, what David did, right? Saul was a foot taller than everyone. He looked like a king. Looks were important to him. He would have never bowed down. He would have never humbled himself, lowered himself to this point. He remained elevated. And that's why God took the kingdom away from him, and gave it to this other man. Michal is, is kind of like Christians who are okay with God's presence being here, but not let, let's not get all crazy, right? Let's not get all caught up in this being a servant thing and this serving Jesus thing. Let's, let's focus in on ourselves. Let's focus in on our life. Let, let's elevate ourselves instead of falling down at his feet and just worshiping him. We're too important for that. Look at our position. Can we just all be careful here? We know God opposes opposes the proud. That's why he struck down Uzzah. Uzzah and and Misha were the same. Right? Same, Same things are going on. Both of them think just too much of themselves and weren't going to bow down to God. Weren't going to serve anyone. And as a result, one is struck down, right? Physically dies there on the spot. And the other one is struck down. And her legacy dies with her. She, she dies childless. And the Messiah would come from one of 
David's other wives, Bathsheba. Bathsheba? Really? The one who he had the affair with? That's who the Messiah would come through? Yeah, because of, out of that situation came repentance. Right? Out of that situation came a humbling of hearts. You think you're beyond God's grace because of your past or what's going on? You think God can't use you? No, if you humble yourself, if you repent, those are the people he's looking for. Not the proud, not the elevated, not the look how great I am, look how important I am, right? Look how much money I give to the church. No, right? None of those things. The people who are broken before the Lord, broken in spirit, poor in spirit, those that are willing to obey him, even if it's done imperfectly, I'm going to serve you, serve you. I might screw it up, but I love you so much. I want to be a part of what you're doing. God's looking for the humble. Don't elevate yourself, right? Don't let other people elevate you. Throw your crown down at his feet. I pray you can get to the place where you don't care what you look like, too. I, I struggle with that sometimes. I don't want to look foolish, right? But I pray that we get to the place where we don't care what other people think because we're so focused in on the king of kings, the king passing by. A couple bonus points I just want to close with. Number one, don't let failure stop you, right? David starts to move the ark, has the right intention, and somebody dies. That'll stop something, right? He gets all mad, and he quits. That's a failure. But three months later, he goes back. He humbles himself, right? He learns from his mistakes, and he does it the right way, the right way being he focuses in on God. People are afraid to do ministry because they think they might fail. Listen, you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes in ministry. Most likely you will. That's okay. Just don't quit. Learn from them. Failure brings us closer to our independence to our God. When we fail, we realize, man, I got to go back to square one. I got to focus in on him. I need his power. I need his direction. I'm desperate for that, right? Dependent and plugged in, that's a great place to be for ministry. Yeah, it's going to scare you. That's a good thing because that will bring you there as well. That keeps us humble. That keeps him glorified. I tell people all the time, ministry is messy. Ministry is messy. It's okay. We're going to make mistakes, but we're going to keep focusing on him. We're going to keep trying to serve him to the best of our ability. We're going to keep our focus on what he's calling us to do. Do you know this thing right here? How many of you have WD-40 in your house? Pretty much everything. Do you know what the WD-40 stands for? Water displacement. Who said that? Water displacement 40. Do you know what the 40 is? Took them 40 times to get it right. Right? 39 times he failed. Trying to make this anti-corrosive stuff that displaced water. 39 times he messed up. Norm Larson. But on the 40th time, he got it right. Don't stop serving. Don't give up on ministry. Right? Right? 
Second bonus point, I will tell you this. You are never as vulnerable than when you are in victory. You are never as vulnerable during the mountaintop experiences with God because that's when you let your guard down. You've been struggling to get to those moments. You've been depending on God, but once you get there, then you, you kind of ease up in your dependence on him, and that's when the enemy attacks. David gets the ark into the city, right? Everyone gets their raisin cakes. He's worshiping. He's praising God, and then bam, he comes home, right, and he gets sucker punched right in his own home. Don't be shocked when you're serving and you get hit. Charles Spurgeon said, pirates always look for loaded vessels. Pirates look for the vessels that are riding low in the water because he knows, because they know they're full. And that's when they look to rob them. The enemy will try and mess with you on that mountaintop experience and take you down out of your victory. Notice this, though. Notice David's response. David is not having any of the shade that Michelle is throwing at him. Oh, how dignified you were today, right? Shame on you, David. I love David's response, though. Oh, wife, you haven't seen nothing yet, right? I will become even more undignified than this. I'm going to take it up a few notches from here, right? And that's what you have to do when the enemy starts attacking you. Take it up a few notches in worship, right? I'm going to worship the king, the king, even harder. I'm going to lower myself even more so that he is raised up. He is glorified. I'm nothing before the king. Take your worship up a few notches when the enemy comes against you. My friends, the king is passing by. Fall down in worship. Lower yourself. Empty yourself. Take off your crown, your earthly crown that is nothing before the king. Take off those royal garments. Take off that attitude of, uh, I'm more important than anybody else.